everything we just sang about is true. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And we're going to actually look at that this morning in the text in front of us. But before we get there, i reminded of something that I learned in my adolescent psych class when I was in college about something that happens in a child's life as their brain isn't working exactly right yet and they're experimenting and they're learning. And uh, those uh, parents that are in the Love and Logic class on Wednesday night are learning a lot about kids and their brains and uh, how to cope with that and how to manage it. After the first week was over on Wednesday night, their parents, or second week, their parents were coming out and they said, this is the greatest thing I've ever been to. I'm realizing how to work with my kids. And one of the moms says, it's like magic. You know, we all need, I, I remember, you know, you need coaching at that stage with your kids because they've just got brains and you just can't figure them out. Well, one of that part of it for a kid is this, that when they get scared, do you know what they do? There's a stage in which they close their eyes or they're playing hide and go seek. And you know what they do? They, they, they just close their eyes and somehow they think they're hidden. <laughs> Isn't that right? So, you know, I close my eyes and either I go away or the scary thing goes away. They don't know exactly what's going on in a kid's thinking, but that's the reaction they have. If I close my eyes, it goes away. Boy, wouldn't that be great if that worked? (laughs) What a solution. Something in front of me that's scary or I want to get out of a place, I just close my eyes. Well... If that happened, we'd all be navigating our day with people all around us, maybe even us walking through our day with our eyes completely closed. It might be a great solution, but imagine what would be true of our medical resources uh, as a result of everybody running around uh, navigating life with their eyes closed. But maybe it's true. Maybe it's actually true, not physically, that we think that if we close our eyes, we'll be okay. But we actually close our eyes, our spiritual eyes, hoping that we'll be okay. And then we come to the second chapter in the Gospel of Mark, and we read a remarkable story of God's invitation to us to walk through life with our eyes wide open. The first thing we learned in Mark chapter 1 last week and in your small group study was that Jesus is king. He says it. He comes right out, just right out of the gates. John goes to it. Mark goes to it so quickly in his gospel. Uh, before, before we're 320 words into it, uh, he has just hit us with this reality. When you come to Jesus, he says, follow me, and he means it. It's really a remarkable gospel. We talked about how, John, how Mark lovingly crafted this thing, not as a police report, but as an anthem, as a tribute to Jesus. You can see it. He just crafted it, shaped it in such a way that literally the very middle of the gospel is Peter saying about Jesus that he is the Messiah, the King. And it is the Father saying about Jesus that he is his devoted Son. Right there in the middle, Mark put the whole story together so that we would get to the very center point of the story and we would see this tribute, this focus, this center point. Jesus is the king. 
So he wrote this with intentionality. And then we get to Mark chapter 2, and we read a little bit more about what Jesus is like and his life is like here on earth. So I'm going to just read this story to you and then ask you what stands out to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So what stands out in that story to you? Can I just hear from a few of you? What was it that just you noticed that stands out as an interesting part of that story? Jesus knew in his spirit. Yeah, what they were thinking. They hadn't said it out loud, had they? That's good. What else? He would forgive sins first. That he would forgive sins first. Interesting, isn't it? What else? Faith. Good. Anything else you see? He's Jesus' inside. Yeah, yeah, he leaves, he goes out, leaves the place, walks out, right? There's a power. He, Jesus has the power there, yeah. That the, the, the paralyzed man had friends, right, yeah. There's so many things in it. I gave a trick question last week, so you may wonder why everyone's so reticent to respond. It's because... <laughs> <laughs> there, there was that trick question last week, wasn't there? No trick questions this week. Typically, you hear in that story, I mean, there are three kind of themes to it. There's the, the, the men bringing their friend to Jesus. And how many of you heard sermons on that one, right? It's a pretty cool sermon, actually, that they bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And then there is that he's healed. I mean, how extraordinary is that, right? That power that he walks he actually walks out of there. And then right there in the middle that he declares he forgives sin. 
It's kind of an odd thing, actually, isn't it? That the first thing that Jesus says is your, your sins are forgiven. And so what is the main point that Jesus is trying to make here? We can focus on, wow, the power to heal. We can focus on the kindness of the friends. But we know what Mark's main point is in this story. In fact, it's what he's done with the whole gospel. He put the middle, he put right in the middle the thing he most wanted us to see. And that's how he tells this account and describes what historically happened. Right in the middle, he points out what he most wants the hearer to see. And it is these words of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Now there are a couple of things about this that I wanted to draw attention to that Mark is letting us know about who Jesus is. And the first thing is, he reigns above all. He reigns above all. Last week we noticed that Jesus comes in and he is described and essentially describes himself as king. But when he gets to this point and he says to this man, your sins are forgiven, he'll never be able to walk that one back. He is saying he is the king above all. Now, in their culture, there were kings of all sorts of various nations, and one might think it was pretentious of Jesus to claim to be one. But by the time we get to this place in the story, we realize that Jesus isn't merely claiming to be one of many. He's claiming to be the one over all. This is not merely a king forgiving a person. This is God himself saying about a person's life that they are completely and utterly forgiven. He's referred to here as the Son of Man. It is an Old Testament reference that has to do with God Most High, that this is what Jesus is saying about himself, that he is God Most High and he reigns above all kings and above all. All peoples. Now, now we, didn't ha- we don't have to know what son of man means in order to understand this. There are actually some people that say, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Oh, yes, he did. Every single one of the religious people that heard Jesus' words knew exactly what he was claiming to be. And we even see it here in what they say. No, no one can forgive sins except God himself. They were both right and wrong at the same time. Only God can forgive sins. Forgive sins on behalf of another. Forgive sins of someone whom hasn't been sinned against him. I can forgive you if you harm me. I can't forgive you if you harm another. Jesus has never met this person before. Keller, in this chapter that we're studying this week, talks about if person B, A, is hurt by person B, Person C can't forgive person A if they're they're friends. The only way that person A's offense of person B can be forgiven by person C is if person C is somebody really remarkable. That number one has the authority to pronounce it and has the ability to care for person B who has been harmed by person A. You see, Jesus walks in and he claims to be the one 
who forgives all sins. And the religious leader says, only God can do that. They were right. The only thing they were wrong on was the identity of Christ. He is, claims to be, and was God most high. God, God here lets us know that Jesus Christ comes as the king who reigns over all. He reigns over all. And there's a second aspect of this. And it is not only that he reigns over all, but he rules over all. He comes as a ruler. A ruler actually has a kingdom. And when you have a kingdom, you set up rules in order that people's lives might be protected and the place might flourish. So the law, the rules matter. And Jesus walks in and you would say, Jesus, if you were really trying to win friends, the first thing out of your mouth wouldn't be to address a person's sinful behavior. I mean, can you imagine inviting Jesus to your party and the first thing he says to your friends is, your sins. I mean, that's, everything's just going to go badly from there. But for Jesus, it's the, third, the second and third word, son, your sins. He doesn't even know the person. He's never met the person before, and he goes immediately to your sins. Why does he do it? Because he's king, and he has a kingdom. And in his kingdom, he wants to make sure that the kingdom characterizes the glory of the king and that the citizens of the kingdom can live in a place where it's possible for them to flourish and others around them to flourish as well. So it should be no surprise to us that the one who reigns above all also rules over all and will address this issue of sin. Now let's talk about that word for a little while because it's a word that we don't really use, or at least not with any appreciation or regard for it very often. And Jesus is using a word here. There are a number of words that are used in Scripture for sin, a variety of them that point out particular details of what sin is like. And here he uses the most generic, the most universal one that is out there. There are a couple of features to sin and a number of types of sin, but the two primary ways that sin is described is sin is an offense against, is a breaking of the rules. It's a sin against the one who has the rules. And that's probably the one that we hear most of all is this sense that um, it, is a, it is a departure from the ways of righteousness. It is, it is the things that are opposed to God. To break the law, uh, the laws that were intended to ensure for a people justice and flourishing for them, uh, when the law is broken, here's the problem with it. It changes the relationship between the person who breaks the law and the person who upholds the law. My brother was in law enforcement. He was a deputy. And we had a great relationship. But you know what? I bet, I'm sure that everything would have changed if he would have been in the squad car that pulled me over for speeding. Hey, we're, we're f hey bro, how are ya? <laughs> and Mike says to me, sorry, Mark, I'm not your bro right now. I am law enforcement. And he had to be. He would have to be that. Do you see 
what happens when a sin is vi- when a law is violated, the relationship between the people involved and it completely changes. And God intended for us to be in relationship. He walked and talked and fellowshiped in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's what he wanted it to be. He wants to be father. He wants to be our children. And what happens when sin enters in, when we decide to go our own way and break the law, it breaks our relationship with our father. I don't want to be in a relationship with my brother characterized by him being the deputy and me being the transgressor. But until that's solved, we can't get back to where we were. And so this king, who is ruler over all, addresses the issue of sin because he wants to get back to the relationship that he intended for him in the first place. So that's one aspect of sin. It has this character trait of restoring relationship. But there's another part of the aspect of sin, and it has to do with what happens to me when I make those kinds of choices. I actually defile or break the very thing that I was intended to be. When God made the world and God made human beings, he intended for them to flourish. He made a world that was filled with beauty and goodness. It's the first thing we know about the gospel. God is good and God is beautiful and he wants us to experience not only a world filled with beauty, but to be people characterized by that goodness and that flourishing ourselves. And many of the things that God tells us to not do, he tells us to not do them because of the harm that they do to us. And that's the other aspect of what uh, some of the words that are lumped up around this word sin. It means actually to miss the mark. There is this, there is this goal and this objective. And if we make choices that, that aren't within the realm of that goal, we actually miss the mark of what was intended. I got a present for Christmas, and it is a booklet, and it's called The Cupping Log. And if any of you are, uh, love coffee, you'll understand what this is about. You, you can uh, roast beans, and you take this, um, uh, this, this the roasted uh, beans and, uh, and uh, the coffee that is made by them, and then you cup. You just take a little bit of it, and you kind of slurp it up into the top of your mouth, and you can get all of the aspects of what the coffee is like and actually determine how good it is. And in this cupping law, there, cupping log, there are all sorts of evaluations for everything. Now, I've never done this. I probably never will. So it's just kind of a cool present that I'll never use. <laughs> but I'm using it this morning. And so, and so there are these marks that you can get for a particular roasting of a bean. And here are the evaluations, fragrance or aroma. And you hit the mark as far as how it does. Flavor, aftertaste, acidity, sweetness, mouthfeel, balance, clean cup, uniformity, and then there's this overall marking that you do. And you know what they're trying to determine when they test a bean? They're trying to figure out if it hits the mark or not. You see, the bean was intended to have all of these aspects so that when you drank the coffee, there would be a sense of it being robust and alive and good and beautiful. And if it misses the mark... It's just a, there's just a sense of sadness about what happened in the process. Did you know that you could actually change the flavor of a coffee bean by the soil that it's grown in? 
there's actually coffee beans that will taste like garbage. It's actually on the scale. They'll actually taste like garbage because the soil around them was littered with garbage. You better believe that bean will miss the mark. Absolutely. And when Jesus talks about sin, he's concerned about it because God has an objective, a longing, a dream for you before you were, before you were made in your mother's womb. He had a longing that your life would be a life characterized by flourishing. So when Jesus talks about sin, he's talking about two things. One, his longing to be in relationship again with his kids. And two, for us to live a life that is characterized by flourishing. And because he is the king of the universe and reigns above all and rules over all, when the king walks into my life and yours, he will say, your sin. Your sin. Because of who he is. But then we come to the great part of the story and we discover another aspect of who he is. He says to this Lame man, your sins are forgiven. If the day would have ended there, it would still be a day this man would cherish for all eternity. Because deeper than anything external in our lives, Jesus knows there's a healing we all long to have happen. It is that restoration of relationship with the one who made us and loves us. It is a renewal of the possibility that our lives can be filled with abundance. And then we get to this second character trait, third character trait, that Mark wants us to know about Jesus. He reigns, he rules, and he restores. You know, when you're reading this week, you know, perhaps you've read it already, maybe you'll be able to chance, get a chance to talk about it when you're in your small groups this week, but Keller talks about an article he read by a woman named Cynthia Heimel, who used to write for The Village Voice. And she was writing an article about well-known people, people that just seem to make it in their life. They're, they're doing so well, called celebrities. And she wrote in this article about the trajectory of a celebrity's life, and she said, I actually pity them. This is what she wrote in Village Voice. I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, 
that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And then at the end of her essay, she makes a statement. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you his, your deepest wish. And then we turn to Mark chapter 2, and we realize there is no practical joke at all that God wants to play in us. In fact, he wants us to give us our deepest wish, the one that we didn't even know we wished for. That he actually, by the power of his words and his life and his choices, could heal us deeply in regards to our relationship with God the Father and towards our capacity to live and to walk in newness of life. And it is Jesus that does the restoration. This is the thing that Jesus does. Did you see what he asked? He knows what they're thinking. You already mentioned that. They didn't say it out loud, but he knew what they were thinking. And so he turns to them and he asks the question, okay, which is easier? Is it easier to say to this man, get up and walk? Or is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven? But, but so that you might know I have the power to forgive sins. He turns to him and he says, take up your mat and walk. Now, I would say that's pretty hard. I mean, anybody here done that? You know, on the level of daunting things to do or difficult things to do, I would say to say to a lame man, get up and walk, and then he does, that's way up there. You would say, well, that's got to be the tough one. But we understand what is happening here, actually. They're not sure that while he said he did the first, your sins are forgiven, he actually had the capacity to do it. But still, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Which is easier? By the time we get to Mark chapter 15, we discover which is the most difficult. Because Mark will describe for us a person who loved us so much that he bore the unbearable in going to the cross so that our sins might be forgiven. Isn't it interesting, the foreshadowing in this story where Jesus asked the question, which is easier? And we thought forgiveness of sins was easier until we get to the end of the book and we realize that he not only reigns and rules, but he restores, and he does it because he loves us so. Because he loves us so. Jesus restored. He restores all that is needed for those offering to him all that they are. And that's really where we come to in this story, isn't it? Will I offer to him all that I am. There is such a tendency for us to be like that adolescent who has concluded, if I close my eyes, it goes away. And so 
all of that stuff that I don't want anybody to see or to know about stays hidden when the person who actually loves me enough to restore me is inviting me to bring it out in the open. To live with eyes wide open, to do the assessment in my life where I say, God, please show me the stuff that breaks my relationship with you because I want to bring it to you that you might forgive and heal. God, show me the stuff in my life that messes my life up because I want to bring it out in the open to you so that you might say, Mark, your sins are forgiven. You know what the word forgiven, literally the Greek word right there for forgiven is? Is I let go of. <laughs> your sins, I know them. You know them. In a relationship with God, we confess them. And we bring them to him. And he holds them up. And he gives his life. And he lets them go. The deepest healing possible for human life. And Jesus the King does that. So I want to encourage just a couple of applications here as we wrap up. One is, rather than closing our eyes to what might be deep down inside messing us up, during the season of Lent, let's take an inventory. That's what I would invite you to do. Take an inventory. Lord, what is there? And we can do it unafraid because we know who Jesus is and what he wants to do. But to take an inventory in our crossroads um, uh, uh, groups, the regen curriculum that they're going through, there's this fourth step and it is to take a deep inventory. And the material that we're using here is really extraordinary, going so much deeper. And Sandy, who's leading the team with that, has said, you know what, when we get to the fourth step and the 12 steps and, and we really go into a deep inventory, says, this is when people begin to peel off because it's so uncomfortable. If we know who Jesus is, there's a magnetism in us that draws us to do inventories like that because we know who Jesus is. So there's my encouragement to you in the context of this time of Lent to take deep inventory. And then the second thing is this, to go through those things with others. I think it's so easy to say, I'm gonna just kinda deal with it internally, or I'm raising my hand and say, I'm, I'm over it. But you know what? I think that there is so much value in being able to find someone or even an empty room where you say it out loud. 
in order that you might hear the words of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Or hear it from a friend who knows Jesus perhaps better than you to hear it and say, I heard it. He knows it. And this is what I know about Christ. He would say to you right now, your sins are forgiven. Are you willing to take all of who you are to all of who he is? Let's inventory our lives. And if we haven't yet surrendered, if you haven't yet surrendered your life to Christ, please, 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 come to someone you know or one of us and let us speak to you the words that Jesus wants you to know and invite you to walk away from the lameness of your life and dance again. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, we thank you for who you are, that you reign that you rule, and that you are the one that restores. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.